Today at Reader's Corner, Deepo Faloyan, debut author of Africa is Not a Country, Notes on a Bright Continent. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. So often, Africa has been depicted simplistically as a uniform land of famines and safaris, poverty and strife, stripped of all nuance. In his new book, Africa is Not a Country, Notes on a Bright Continent, Deepo Faloyan offers a much-needed corrective, weaving a tapestry of stories that bring to life Africa's rich diversity, communities, and histories. Deepo Faloyan is a senior editor at Vice, where he focuses on race, culture, and identity around the world. His writing has appeared in Dazed, Prospect, and HuffPost. Africa is Not a Country is his debut book, and joining us today from London is Deepo Faloyan. Welcome to Reader's Corner. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be here. Well, let's start uh, right off here by uh, introducing us to Lagos, Nigeria. Uh, that is where you were born and raised until you were 10. I guess your parents emigrated to London at that time. Yeah. Um, in fact, they sent me to boarding school here in the UK. Uh-huh. Uh, so they actually stayed in Lagos. Um, but Lagos is an incredibly special place. Um, to me and my family, my parents spent a lot of their youth there. Um, I grew up there and it's such an incredible city. When I think about Lagos, the sort of the first words that I think of, uh, diversity. Um, you know, there are so many experiences represented in this one city of 15 million people plus. Uh, it's an incredibly vibrant ur- urban area where, you know, people keep coming. No one really seems to be leaving. Um, like most <laughs> cities in the world, you know, it's, it's represented best by its willingness to just accept so many differences, so many, uh, ethnic groups, so many languages. Um, and it's, it, it's impossible to just, you know, put this one city in a box. And I start the book, uh, talking about Lagos. Uh, because I think it's so important for people to build that personal connection with a specific place in Africa in a way that most people haven't done so in the past. Tell us about some of the other stereotypes that uh, your book smashes over the course of 300 pages. Yeah, certainly. I mean, if you ask most people to close their eyes and picture Africa, they think of two things only, uh, which is poverty and safari, and very little in between that. They see Africa as the singular monolith of sort of arid red soil where nothing but misery grows and where we have sort of elephants and tigers roaming around in our backyards. And it's this unfortunate myth that's been allowed to carry on and on over the decades. Um, And it is something that has plagued the continent um, ever since colonialism, really. Um, And it's such a frustrating thing because you're talking about a region of 54 countries, 1.4 billion people, and over 2,000 languages reduced to this this one narrative, this singular story of pain and strife where people can't look after themselves, apparently. And, um, you know, they just sit around waiting for another aid package to get delivered. Um, and, you know, it, it's something that is incredibly frustrating for so many people across the region um, because you spend your life trying to push back against that. You know, I know I certainly did when, as I said earlier, you know, I went to boarding school in the UK and uh, innocently, you know, you have... Uh, fellow students who have grown up kind of expecting, you know, that I would, I would have had sort of, you know, lions and tigers roaming around my backyard as pets and, <laughs> and all these things. And, you know, having to explain that, no, it's, it's, it wasn't quite like that. You know, I, I grew up in a city. I, I don't think I've ever seen a wild animal, uh, in my life. Um, 
And, you know, the, 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 probably the most fascinating things that happen in Lagos happen around traffic and, and, you know, the, the, the daily commute to work and school. Um, and so, you know, for me, I kind of, I don't want my nephew and nieces growing up having to explain these same, that these same stereotypes are false. And I think it's, you know, it's about time that we really push back against them to tell a more comprehensive story. And that's what this book aims to do. Mm-hmm. Well, you might say that, uh, these stereotypes perhaps grew in part anyway out of something called the Berlin Conference of 1884, where it all starts. I wonder if you could share with us just how this sets the stage for the many challenges that Africa faces over the years. Certainly. Um, uh, The tagline for the book is Breaking Stereotypes of Modern Africa, and it's key uh, understanding what we mean by modern Africa. Um, The modern Africa that I refer to starts in 1884, um, when the colonial powers of the day, 14 of them, um, including Great Britain, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and uh, the United States met in Berlin um, to discuss how they were going to colonize the continent. They wanted to come to some sort of understanding and agreement as to how they were going to carve up this land and steal its natural resources. Um, They had sent explorers into the region before then who had come back and reported to them about this incredible, wonderful land where you know, people were thriving and it was as culturally and technologically advanced as anywhere else. And in response to that, the colonialists decided that, you know, they would, that they had the requisite weapons um, to force themselves onto these people. And so they decided to meet to hash it out. They didn't, they weren't so much concerned by uh, the lives and livelihoods of the communities of people who actually lived in Africa. What they were worried about was that if they simply rushed in, um, and started stealing land that they would uh, fight amongst themselves. And that is the colonialists would fight amongst themselves over pieces of land. And then eventually they would go to war. Um, so they sat down in Berlin in 1884 to hash out the rules. And one of the first things they had to deal with was the fact that this was very much illegal at the time. Um, as it is today, it was then that you couldn't simply just go into someone else's land and steal it. And so they decided to create this myth And the myth was that Africa and Africans were uncivilized people. Uh, These were people who could not look after themselves. Uh, These were people who needed the Europeans to come in and save them um, from their wretched lives. And they decided that uh, they would introduce what they called the three C's, which was civilization, commerce, and Christianity. Um, Now, obviously, this was a complete myth, but it was the story and the false narrative that they created to justify um, plundering this entire region. And so at Berlin, they agreed that it was very much their right uh, to go in and steal this land from people and uh, to create and invent brand new countries that previously did not exist. Um, and this event, the Berlin Conference, most people don't know about it. It's not really taught in schools. It's not really understood when we talk about the context of of modern Africa and the formation of these countries. Um, and it was really the beginning of this devastating period of uh, pain and violence that was inflicted onto the region by the colonialists. Now, what they had to do, among other things, is decide who gets what land. And in order to do that, I guess you have to draw a map. Um, that was kind of an odd process, not exactly the way we would think uh, you might draw a map today. Absolutely. Um, it was a a pure invention. What they what they did was that they created countries essentially to fail. Um, they they built these lands uh, metaphorically on sand um, to make it as easy as possible for them to extract 
the natural resources from these countries while making it as hard as possible for the uh, communities to fight back against what they were doing. And so uh, they created these comically large countries that were filled with dozens and dozens of different ethnic groups, um, people who didn't speak the same languages, didn't worship the same gods. It became incredibly difficult for them to come together as one to fight back against the colonialists. And also they didn't really know much about the land and the terrain that they were exploiting, you know, and so what you ended up having were explorers who would sort of come in and they would uh, draw these lines around regions that they themselves didn't really know much about. Um, and eventually what they did was to make it as easy as possible for themselves, uh, they drew lots and lots of just straight lines. Um, if you look at a map of Africa, what you see are plenty and plenty of just straight lines, about 30% of all borders on the continent, um, in fact, are straight lines. And these lines and these borders cut across and sort of destroyed about 10% of all ethnic groups in the region, uh, forced disparate communities to live together. Um, and it, 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 it's, it sowed this, this chaos and confusion within the region. Um, and it invented these nations that had previously not existed before countries that we know today. And, and that invention is what, uh, nations have had to live with ever since. You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is Deepo Faloyan, debut author of Africa is Not a Country, Notes on a Bright Continent. Well, the first country to be created after the Berlin Conference was the Congo Free State, now called the Democratic Republic of Congo. I wonder if you could comment on King Leopold's reign and especially how many lives were lost by Belgian colonization in those days. Yeah, so King Leopold II was a uh, former king of Belgium um, who... Uh, in the book, I describe him as the board king um, because he was incredibly frustrated that his uh, duties back in Belgium were largely ceremonial and he didn't have any serious responsibilities. And so what he wanted was a country of his own to run. Um, and so after the Berlin conference, he asked for a large part of Central Africa. And, you know, most of the other uh, colonial powers didn't really know what was in uh, this large expanse of land in Central Africa. So they, they gave it to him. Um, and so he took over, um, this land. He called it the Congo Free State. Uh, but very quickly after he took it over, he realized it was actually quite expensive running a country. Um, and the, the Belgian government were spending a huge amount of money, uh, trying to maintain the state. And so they threatened that they were going to take it off him unless he found a way of turning a profit. And so his idea was to, turn the previously free people of Central Africa to work as uh, into slaves. Um, and it was a brutal regime of slavery. Um, largely, they worked uh, trying to feed the growing tire population by extracting rubber from vines, which is an incredibly painful process because it involves slicing, uh, slashing at vines, and then uh, what would come out would sort of stick to your skin, and then you'd have to sort of tear that off. Um, and this regime because you know even after he he started this uh the slavery reign uh it was still not making a huge amount of money so it just became more and more brutal it became harder and harder for uh the men and women uh in the congo free state and you know if you refused to work you were killed if you didn't work fast enough you were killed um and in the end in you know less than 20 years of running the congo free state about half the population were murdered um about 10 million people and, you know, that is essentially the birth of the Democratic Republic of Congo, 
um, you know, it, it's born out of this pain and this violence. And it was, it should have been a warning sign for the rest of the colonialists um, to say that, you know, perhaps this isn't the right thing to do because word of King Leopold's reign spread quickly. Um, but unfortunately, it wasn't enough um, to to convince the other colonial powers that, you know, what they were doing was wrong and that, and that uh, essentially by violence, taking over large swaths of land uh, that did not belong to you um, was was an incredibly uh, violent and vicious thing to do. But, you know, it simply just unleashed everyone else on the rest of the region. Um, and that context is so important that the founding of these nations that did not exist before and being founded based on opportunity um, to exploit and extract and the violence that was inflicted on them uh, to do that is something that many countries have, are still having to reckon with. Um, and it's really, really important that that context is introduced when we talk about Africa. And if we don't introduce that context, then it's easy to kind of look at these countries and, and think that, oh, the instability that exists within them and the challenges that they face are based on what the colonialists um, called a lack of civilization. Well, was, Somalia comes to mind in that respect. Uh, that seems to be a country that uh, maps were drawn with no respect for tribal boundaries. And, and look what you have almost down to the present. Isn't that the case? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you, you see it in Somalia, you see it in Sudan, um, you see it in the civil wars that, that plagued the continent after the independence era. There was little concern over the history and traditions of the ethnic groups that were being thrown together, their inability to communicate. Um, you know, they didn't worship the same gods, didn't have the same traditions. And, and often as part of, uh, the colonial rule, especially when the British were concerned, policies of divided rule were implemented. So, you know, they would find the worst amongst them, um, men and men, especially normally men, military trained men who were, you know, as I describe in the book, as sort of slick to a bribe. And they would, you know, essentially pay them to turn on their fellow people to, to sow division amongst ethnic groups. It was a it was a strategic plan to create chaos within countries and within regions that had never experienced this level of chaos and violence before. It was something that was introduced into the region. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of people don't know about that. And so what has been passed down has been this idea that there's something inherently wrong with Africans, that instability is just at their core. And I think that that's something that has, has caused, you know, continued damage across the region. How does the white savior industrial complex play into this? I think that was, uh, you quoted a Nigerian writer, Teju Cole, who actually uh, termed that. But I wonder if you could explain uh, to our listeners just what role that plays here in making matters even worse, I guess you could say. Yeah, certainly. Um, so, you know, I, I've spoken about the, the myth that was created by the colonialists in 1884 um, and that myth and the idea that this was a land of uncivilized people who couldn't look after themselves survived certainly well into the 60s um, and into the independence era. And what you had in the, during the, in the 1960s was these were these countries that had, had inherited um, this pain and this chaos and this strife, and they decided that you know well all we have to do is kind of 
get our heads down and and try and deal with the the what we've inherited and and at the same time you know many of the uh colonial powers who were still angry that they had been overthrown essentially were pointing to this chaos and instead of sort of admitting that they were the ones that introduced it in the first place were saying well you see um these uh these uncivilized people don't know how to run a country look at all this uh chaos and look at all this look at all these challenges uh that have uh, continued to exist um and that that myth then found a new uh sort of caught a new wind um in the 60s because of that and and a lot of people started to believe that around the world that oh that that that's there's something happening in africa that doesn't seem that doesn't seem right it seems like this is a place of uh of strife and pain and poverty um and for very different reasons than the colonialists initially in 1884 you started having uh sort of development agencies and charities in particular who decided that what they wanted to do was that they wanted to go in and, and save africa and and uh clearly that you know africans are, are not in a position to look after themselves and so in the 70s and 80s you started seeing these uh new forms of uh of of generating lots and lots of 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 money and donations and these were these celebrity backed campaigns um the most famous of which was do they know it's christmas and often it had a white celebrity amongst you know uh malnourished children you know most of listeners now if you close your eyes you can picture what these campaigns looked like and what they continue to look like uh you have you know malnourished children uh babies with with flies running around their heads um you see patients in hospitals on the brink of death and there's often very little context um no one's names are given there's no broader idea as to uh what the conflict was or what may have caused it or what steps have been taken to fix it um you have a narrator just explaining that here in africa people are suffering um and it it centered the western world above africans it it created that idea that many people have grown up with that africa is continues to be a place where people can't look after themselves and that the only joy that ever exists comes cradled by the white western world um and it left a lot of african countries unable to project a different image onto the world at time at a time when especially in the 70s and 80s where many african countries had had done so well to deal with the initial challenges that they faced after after independence and and what they had inherited and they wanted to present their country to the rest of the world and say you know come here and visit us and spend some time here with us but instead these uh these adverts and these campaigns were spreading around the world at an unbelievable rate um showing that or 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 portraying an africa that was one of just nothing but pain and suffering um i mentioned earlier that the most famous one was do they know it's christmas and you know that is a song that continues to be played every year uh especially here in the UK which has lyrics such as uh that there's no flowing water in africa that the only water that exists comes from people's tears um that it's a region filled with fear and dread um it's a place where the only hope that anybody in africa has is to stay alive um it continues to just push these messages of 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 pain and negativity and it's had huge consequences on countries that want people to see them for who they are and want people to come and visit 
um, and 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 you know build their lives there and maybe start a business there. Um, it's it's had a devastating impact. And as you point out, it misses the fact that seven out of ten of the world's fastest uh, economies are in Africa, and a, a very different story than the one you've just described. Certainly, yeah. Um, so many stories were completely missed um, throughout the 70s and 80s and 90s of of nations that were developing at unbelievable rates. Um, in the book, I go into detail about uh, Kony 2012 um, and the impact that that had on uh, Uganda in particular. This was a campaign, a uh, very thickly produced video that depicted Uganda as a country that was entirely overrun by a warlord called Joseph Kony, who was roaming around the streets in a four by four, stealing children off the land, trying to force them into his army. And for a period of time in the week after that film was released, it became the most watched film on YouTube, uh, in YouTube history. Um, and it, it, it projected a, a nation that wasn't essentially true. Uh, you had Uganda had done an incredible amount of work, the government and activists to push Joseph Kony out of the country by the time the film had come out, but that wasn't reflected in the film at all. Um, and Uganda suffered a huge amount from that. Um, you had a situation in which in 2012 and early 2012, the magazine Lonely Planet had listed Uganda as uh, one of its top tourist destinations in the world. Uh, but then this film comes out painting Uganda as a nation overrun by this warlord. And as you can imagine, tourism to Uganda completely uh, collapsed uh, for the first time in years. Uh, you saw a nation um, that was, you know, had, 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 had really found its footing and, and was attracting tourism. And, and suddenly that completely went away uh, off the back of just one uh, poorly put together film. And so, you know, a, a lot of the images and these stereotypes and these single stories have a huge impact on the continent and have had a huge uh, negative impact on the kind of appreciate that, you know, many development agencies and charities are filled with people who are genuinely trying to do good work and make a difference. Um, it's really important that, you know, we, we don't continue to go down this path um, and we don't continue to have uh, this damage inflicted on countries. I'm Bob Custer, a host of Reader's Corner. Today I'm speaking with Deepo Faloyan, debut author of Africa is Not a Country, Notes on a Bright Continent. One of the things that I came away with in your very well-written book, I mean, you did such a magnificent job, it's so beautifully done, is, is what I would call the globalization of violence. And and by that, I, I I'll take you to an example you used of a mass shooting in America. Um, it's the tragic Charleston shooting where nine churchgoers were killed. Uh, this seems to be a perfect example of what happens across the world, not just Africa or the United States, uh, when ideas are transported uh, far and wide. And in this case, uh, I think it's the case of the police tracking down this suspect, the, the guy who eventually was, was identified as the killer, and they go to his house and they find some things that really are about settler rule 
as Africa experienced it. And I wonder if you could explain that. Rhodesia is the best example, I guess. Yeah, certainly. Um, and and, and I, I talk about the Charleston killing uh, in a chapter called The Story of Democracy Through Seven Dictatorships and explains, um, you know, for, for explains the sort of context that, uh, that has existed, that has caused, uh, you know, so much of the initial strife in the early years after independence, um, for countries who were trying to find some form of democracy. And I try to explain just the level of, um, of violence that was introduced into these countries by colonial powers and the level of turmoil that had to be overcome to get to the point in which these countries could enjoy democracy, first of all. And I use the example of Rhodesia um, and the uh, settler rule policy that was implemented by the British, and especially in Southern Africa, um, where you know the climate was just about right uh, for the British and they actually wanted to live in the regions that they colonize. Um, and one of the most brutal policies was um, introduced in Rhodesia, which we now know as Zimbabwe. Um, and it was introduced by a, a group of people who, who consider themselves to forever, um, it, they considered that it was their right to forever rule Rhodesia. It was so brutal at the time that um, the British themselves who had moved out of many parts of Southern Africa had tried to get the uh get the current rulers of the region to to pull out themselves but um the head of the what was known as the Rhodesian front a man called Ian Smith um had said that you know it was the white man's right to rule over this piece of africa um and he said that uh you know Rhodesia will be ruled by a white man for uh for the next 100 years and 100 years after that and that level of of white supremacism inspired white supremacists around the world, and especially um, in America, where you know many uh, white supremacists were saying that you know this is exactly the sort of brand of white supremacy that we should be adopting. Um, and it was uh, you know something that inspired Dylan Roof, uh, the man who committed the the murders in Charleston. Uh, he he dedicated his website to uh, Rhodesia. He called his website, uh, I believe it was the last Rhodesian. And it, it just shows the depth of, 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 of violence that was introduced in these countries. Um, because of that settler rule, it radicalized a lot of people. And one of the people that it radicalized was uh, Robert Mugabe, who was imprisoned for many years um, by the Rhodesian front who uh, who eventually uh when he was able to get out of prison had a long uh difficult fight for independence um and what you had was a generation of men who after they eventually won independence because Zimbabwe didn't win independence until about 20 years after most other uh African countries just to give you a sense of just how uh how hard Ian Smith and the uh, Rhodesian front fought to to keep white rule over the region um and so by that point you had a generation of uh older zimbabwean men who who couldn't get over um what had been done to them and their people and you know unfortunately they chose vengeance 
Um, and it, it certainly didn't necessarily benefit a post-independence Zimbabwe, but it's just really important to, to provide some of that context, not to justify what, um, you know, Mugabe and his regime eventually did and, and, you know, um, but it, it's important that a lot of that context is missing when we discuss, uh, the history of, of colonialism in Africa and, and, and what the lasting legacy and the pain that that introduced. Um, it just, it, it's important to kind of understand that there was a, a deliberate type of violent white supremacy that, that caused a certain radicalization. And it wasn't just that, you know, Africans don't appreciate democracy or that they are uh, naturally tuned towards dictatorships, authoritarianism. It's just that the, 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 the depth of pain and violence that was inflicted um, in many countries caused a certain generation to be radicalized. And, and the further away we get from that generation, you know, we're seeing, um, we're seeing huge benefits from that, you know, about 90%, as I mentioned in the book, of, of African countries and now have now adopted uh, democracy in some form. Um, and I think it's really, un, you know, important that we understand that. You're listening to Depot Falayan. He is the author of Africa is Not a Country. And we've reached the end of our 30-minute interview here. But the good news is for our listeners, we're going to come back next week and we're going to pick this up right where we left off. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner.